Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Patrick Zaka. I am chief resident at Emory University's Internal Medicine Residency Program, soon to be cardiology fellow at the University of California in Los Angeles, and a cardio nerds academy fellow in House Tausig, as in the legendary Dr. Helen Tausig. Thanks for tuning in to this fabulous case and our first multi-institutional cardio nerds case report. We get to learn from Dr. Alex Pipolas from Boston University, Dr. Danny Pipolas from Mass General Hospital, and our expert discussant, Dr. Carrie Schaefer from Brigham and Women's Hospital. Alex and Danny are our CardioNerds ambassadors from their respective institutions and as a married couple, also share their experience traversing the many stages of training together. So stay tuned for a very special discussion. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the CardioNerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The speakers have no relevant disclosures and there's no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. Cardinerds, welcome back to another fabulous CNCR. This one is particularly special because it is our first multi-institutional cross-program collaboration. Actually, if you count Karen and myself, we've got fellows representing four programs from the Cleveland Clinic, from the University of Maryland, and very, very happy to welcome back to the show Dr. Danny Papillas from MGH and Dr. Alex Papillas from Boston University. Danny, Alex, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you mind introducing yourselves to the audience? Definitely. Hi, my name is Alex Pibolis. I am a first-year fellow at Boston Medical Center. I did my undergrad training at Boston University, and then went to medical school at Loyola in Chicago, and then came back to Boston Medical Center for IM residency and then chief residency. I'm super excited to be here. I'm originally from Boston, actually, so lifelong, and I am interested ultimately in advanced heart failure and transplant. Thanks for having us. I'm super happy to be back on Cardio Nerds. My name is Danny Pipolis. I'm a second year cardiology fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital. I did undergrad at BU, which is where I met Alex. I did med school at Vanderbilt, and I did my residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital. I'm interested in cardiac electrophysiology, and um, I'm super happy to be here presenting this case to you guys today. I can't wait to talk about it. Alex and Danny, current and future power couple of cardiology and medicine. It is such a pleasure to be with you today. I cannot wait to discuss this case, but first we need a place to discuss it. So Alex and Danny, where do you want us to go to discuss this awesome case you have for us this morning? It's freezing cold here in Boston today, as I'm sure it is across most of the United States. So I was thinking we set up our igloo in Fenway Park And we bring some hot cocoa and we have a discussion under the beautiful lights of Fenway Park with some hot cocoa. (laughs) That sounds like a great way to spend a frigid Sunday morning. Totally excited to do this. But I also want to recognize Alex and Danny, you guys are both ambassadors to what we call the Healy Honoral Programs. Alex, you're the ambassador from BU and Danny, ambassador from MGH. And it's just so happened completely naturally that your program directors, Dr. Omar Siddiqui from BU and Dr. Doreen Defarie from MGH, both nominated uh, you individually. And I remember I was talking to Alex, welcoming her to the family. 
saying, hey, do you know that guy, Danny Papillas? He's, uh, he's also in Boston. She's like, well, uh, actually, he's my husband. <laughs> so I think, Karen, you're absolutely right when you say power couple. With that, guys, let's dive into your case. What do we have? Yeah, happy to get us started. So today we have a 78-year-old female. She has a medical history of atrial fibrillation. She's not currently on anticoagulation due to a prior stroke with hemorrhagic conversion. A history of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, complicated by long-standing what is presumed to be group 2 pulmonary hypertension, who presented to the hospital with recurrent dyspnea exertion. Notably, she's had multiple admissions in the past year for what was ultimately diagnosed as heart failure, with only really mild interval improvement in her symptoms each time. This time, she again complains of dyspnea that was worsened over a period of several days. And at the time of presentation, she really denied orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, or cough. She had not noted significant change in her appetite and didn't really have significant abdominal or lower extremity swelling. She did report some exertional lightheadedness, though. She had not had syncope. She also described some exertional chest pain that was sharp in nature. Alex, thanks for that history. We so often take care of patients with heart failure and admissions for decompensation that it's almost hard to zoom back out and think about their overall trajectory, right? But when I hear a patient who has heart failure and has had multiple admissions over the course of the year, that pretends a very bad prognosis overall, right? So, you know, my level of concern is already pretty high. This particular admission, when she's denying their usual review of systems for fluid overload, orthopnea, PND, edema, I am curious what this particular admission is about. Regardless, it'd be helpful to know more about the context of this presentation, like her overall, the rest of her medical history, just to see if we can start identifying the reasons why she's having so many presentations. Uh, What else do we know about her? For sure. I think the social and medical history context is super important in this case. In terms of her social history, she had recently immigrated to Boston to live with her daughter from Haiti. Uh, She did not drink any alcohol, smoke tobacco, or use any illicit drugs. Her family history, she really didn't know a ton. Uh, She had no known allergies. And in terms of her medications, she really was not on a ton. She was on amlodipine for hypertension and then furosemide 40 milligrams BID for her heart failure. Thanks, Alex. I think one thing to highlight is that she really did not get much medical care in Haiti, and she had been having kind of dyspnea and symptoms similar to this for several years. And so it's kind of unclear, as we'll see as the case evolves, how much medical care in the past she had received, but she did not remember really being worked up for this in any meaningful way prior to moving to the Boston area. Exactly. Uh, So moving on to some of her objective data from her initial presentation, Vitals were notable for a heart rate that ranged from 72 to 89. She had a blood pressure of 130 over 70, and her oxygen saturation was 95% on room air. On physical exam, she was alert and oriented times three. She was in no obvious distress and speaking to us in full sentences. Her cardiac exam was remarkable for an irregularly irregular rhythm, a normal S1, and a fixed split S2. She had an elevated JVP to 12 centimeters of water. Her lungs were clear to auscultation bilaterally. She had some mild diffuse abdominal tenderness, but did not appear distended. And then she had trace lower extremity edema. So Alex, that was a great description of this patient's presentation. And it's it's not an uncommon presentation that we see. And we, we say that frequently on the Cardiodurance Case Reports and the podcast in general, that a lot of these patients present sometimes quite similarly. But the key is trying to differentiate those small little tidbits from the history, the small tidbits from the exam that can kind of differentiate the next steps. 
So I'm trying to start thinking through if I'm putting in buckets, the large bucket, the symptom is dyspnea, and it's in someone that's older and that carries a diagnosis of HEF-PEF. And a lot of times when we get that HEF-PEF diagnosis, it ends there for a lot of clinicians. We fail to ask why. And we know and we're learning from people like Sanjeev Shah and Dr. Sharma at Hopkins and across the country that HEF-PEF has so many different phenotypes. And then we really have to narrow it down in what we're talking about when we speak about HEF-PEF. So one of the first things that I'm thinking about here is, well, is this diagnosis right? It's a chart diagnosis as far as we know at this time, right? But is it truly a diagnosis for the patient? One of the things that's sometimes helpful is the HEF-PEF score, and we can put a link to that in the show notes, and that can be a distinguisher. What's the likelihood they have HEF-PEF? And some of the markers of that are, are they heavy, are they hypertensive, AFib history, and echo parameters of filling pressures. And this patient certainly has a higher HEF-PEF score. And then just clinically, this is someone that fits that phenotype, right? AFib is hypertensive, is older. So certainly we're thinking about that. But there are also factors that doesn't quite fit for me. This is someone that you're describing with a BMI around 28, someone that isn't grossly volume overloaded. So striking to me, is there something else going on? And what could be the ideology of this patient's half path? You know, am I thinking when I start to hear it, think about, could this be an amyloid diagnosis? So on my exam, I'm going to be really paying attention for clues that may be fitting to that. Does it have autonomic neuropathy or the multi-organ involvement? Is there a suggestion of uh, hepatomegaly or dysfunction on the labs? Could this be a patient that has a another restrictive cardiomyopathy? Do they have prominent right-sided symptoms? So we're not going to delve into the full differential of what could be HEF-PEF. But the key question is always asking why, and I think you guys are setting that up nicely of what could be going on. And is it just HEF-PEF? Is it that phenotype that we're all so familiar with, or is there something else that's brewing here? I think that's absolutely right, Karan, especially when you know patients come back with recurrent hospitalizations. I think it's always important to revisit every time and always think about, do we have the right diagnosis for this patient this time? So her labs were notable for a CBC with a white count of 4.5, a hemoglobin of 12.1, and platelets of 156. Her BMP was notable for a creatinine of 1.48 with a BUN of 35. Her initial troponin was elevated at 0.23 and subsequently uptrended slightly to 0.243. Her BNP was 811, and it had been about 500 to 800 on her prior admissions. Her chest x-ray demonstrated cardiomegaly, pulmonary vascular enlargement with no consolidations or effusions. EKG demonstrated atrial fibrillation with right axis deviation and an incomplete right bundle branch block. Her most recent echo had been one month prior. This demonstrated a normal LV cavity size, wall thickness at the upper limit of normal, and an injection fraction of 55%. Interestingly, she had a severely dilated RV with reduced global systolic function with a TAPSI of 1 and an S-prime of 8. She had flattening of the septum in both systole and diastole. She had severe biatrial enlargement. There was also severe TR, and her pulmonary artery systolic pressure was estimated at 59 millimeters of mercury. So this really kind of piques my interest, and I'm kind of honing in on some of the exam findings as well as what you just talked about on the echo, Alex. When you first mentioned the severely dilated and severely dysfunctional right ventricle, I think that in the context of a fixed split S2 on exam really makes me suspicious for an atrial septal defect, which I think we all probably remember from step one being highly associated with an ASD. 
the ASD can cause longstanding RV volume overload, lead to profound right-sided failure and symptoms leading to this patient's presentation. Now, we didn't note an interatrial shunt on the TTE, but that means we may have to look further and go hunting. And RV failure, you know, the right ventricle can sometimes be considered the forgotten ventricle, but it's really a huge mistake to discount this half of the pump because so many patients can present with isolated right ventricular failure and have life-limiting symptoms and have a very high mortality, uh, especially in the setting of HEFPEF RV failure and tricuspid regurgitation. When thinking about RV failure, I find it helpful to break down the causes into buckets, specifically volume overload pressure overload, or primary cardiomyopathic processes. And so some of the volume overload issues that lead to right ventricular failure include valvular disease, like tricuspid regurgitation or pulmonic insufficiency, as well as intracardiac shunts, like atrial septal defects. And then some of the etiologies for right heart failure that fall into the pressure overload category include things like pulmonary embolism or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary hypertension from other etiologies, or severe LV failure leading to elevated right-sided pressures. That also goes along with mitral valve disease, HEFPEF, anything that can elevate pressures on the left side can lead to pressure overload on the right side. And then things like chronic hypoxemia and pulmonic stenosis that also lead to elevated pressures for the right ventricle to see. And then things that lead to cardiomyopathic causes of right ventricular failure are cardiomyopathies like ARVC, or as Karen had mentioned previously, amyloid, and things like right ventricular MI, septic cardiomyopathy, and post-transplant RV dysfunction, just to kind of round out that cardiomyopathic diagnosis. So right now, based on our patient's presentation, I'm kind of leaning into more of the volume overload etiology for her right ventricular dysfunction, but this is kind of super, super interesting, and I can't wait to see more diagnostics that may lead us to a specific etiology. So Danny, that was truly a fantastic description of what your thought process of going through here in this case is and interpreting the exam findings and the echo findings. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with some of the things you mentioned on your differential and also thinking about what's going on. Is this RV volume overload, RV pressure overload? What's going on, on the left side? And I'm still trying to reconcile in my own mind what this patient has been diagnosed with in the past and what they're presenting right now. This diagnosis of HEFPEF and then what we're seeing, at least on exam and echo, predominantly right-sided symptoms. And so some of the things that I'm trying to figure out, as Danny and Alex, you both mentioned at this point, is what's the contribution to each side of the heart of these patient's symptoms? How much is the LV contributing? How much is the left atrium contributing? Which is a critical aspect of thinking through half-pef. You know, Sanjeev Shah will say when we think of half-ref, it's an issue of LV failure. When we're thinking about half-pef, it's an issue of left atrial failure. And then thinking, again, what combination of these factors is what's leading to the patient's symptoms? So, to me, what you've described so far is a patient that has some evidence potentially of LV stiffness or essentially a disease or a cardiomyopathic process there. You're describing some wall thickness at the upper limiter normal, ejection fraction approaching borderline areas, but predominantly a patient that has RV dysfunction. So is this isolated pH? Is this a combination of pre and post capillary pH? Or is this predominantly LV? And one of the things that sometimes is helpful, especially for me, uh, not just on the symptoms, which we've discovered on previous episodes, including predominantly right-sided symptoms like hepatomegaly, ascites, lower extremity edema, is an, is an echo finding and paying attention to some of the diastology. And the E to A can be a marker of 
predominantly LV versus RV involvement. And for our, our listeners that are still in training and not in cardiology, the E to A, meaning what the inflow across the mitral valve is, the velocity of it in early and late diastole. And in patients with predominantly RV dysfunction, that E to A is less than one. And the reason is that there's tends to be increased resistance across the pulmonary vasculature, meaning that there's reduced filling of the LV, and it, it tends to occur later. So when I see a patient characterized with HEF-PEF, and then they have a E to A uh, less than one, then I'm starting to think, well, hmm, is this really an LV issue or is this predominantly an RV issue and what's leading to that RV issue? Now, it's a crude marker, but it's one of the things that's helpful to me. So as we begin to think through the differential, one of the big buckets that I'm thinking about here is this isolated LV, combination of LV-RV, or predominantly RV, and that's going to help me break down my differential further. Amit, any other thoughts you wanted to add? Yeah, Karen, that was beautiful. And I think the the question you asked is uh, sort of an existential one, but it's so important when you say, what is HEF-PEF? And we're still trying to figure that out. But it's not just heart failure and the LVEF is preserved, right? I mean, if you have heart failure because you have mitral valve cortical rupture, and so now you're in acute heart failure, it's not that you have diastolic dysfunction in the LV, right? And so to categorize that as HEF-PEF would do the patient a service, right? And so in this context, if I am looking at the echo read that Alex so beautifully outlined for us, it's really the right side that's suffering, right? I mean, you've got the right side, it's RV is dilated, the septum is flattening and bowing into the left side, both during systole, indicating RV pressure overload and diastole, indicating volume overload. And then I think, okay, is the LV just an innocent bystander here, right? I mean, it's just trying to do its job. And so I go back to Danny's categorization of how he approaches right-sided heart failure. And I think, is this volume overload? And we certainly have uh, suspicion for volume overload with diastolic septal flattening. And that may be presumably from the severe TR. Now, we didn't hear anything in the echoery to suggest a primary tricuspid valve pathology. If you recall from our last BU episode, it was from carcinoid valvular heart disease with severe TR. But here, it may just be functional TR. So is there RV pressure overload, predominantly from, say, pulmonary hypertension? And here, we do have an elevated RVSP, which in the context of severe TR may actually be undercall. So maybe the pulmonary hypertension is worse than it actually is. And there is systolic septal flattening indicating pressure overload, right? And, And if that's the case... The question is, why is it that the patient may have pulmonary hypertension, right? So at this point in the case, I'm really excited to dive into the next phase of diagnostics, right? And one of my favorite things about cardiology is to use all of this multi-modality diagnostics to identify the lesion. So here I'm thinking, okay, Danny and Alex pointed out the fixed split S2. Is there a shunt at a level that we can see in a transthoracic echocardiogram? You may consider getting a transesophageal echocardiogram or cross-sectional imaging, and then also to further interrogate the cause of pulmonary hypertension. A right heart cath could potentially be useful, especially with, with oxygen saturations to calculate a shunt fraction to both diagnose pulmonary hypertension, consider the cause of pulmonary hypertension, whether or not it's left-sided, as well as interrogate for a possible shunt. So what was the next step here, right? We've got a number of questions. We're zoning in to the fact that this patient probably has a picture that's more complicated than just half-pef alone. What did you do next to figure it out? Absolutely, Ahmed. So I'll also echo Karan's point about what is the contribution from the left side? What is the contribution from the right side? I think when we saw this patient in a heart failure consultation, we were really struck actually by her lack of left-sided symptoms. And so we were also really thinking about why does she have such sort of profound right-sided symptoms and right-sided dysfunction on her echo? Absolutely. 
So back to our case, the patient initially had been restarted on her furosemide infusion at the prior effective IV diuretic dose. And after about a day or so of attempted diuresis, her creatinine began to rise and her symptoms were really unchanged. And at that time, actually, the the team that was taking care of her pursued a CT pulmonary angiogram due to this persistent dyspnea and really kind of limited signs of volume overload. The exam showed no evidence of PE, but did show an anomalous insertion of the right superior pulmonary vein into the SVC. This partial anomalous pulmonary venous return was a super interesting finding, especially in light of her RV dysfunction, and really helps to blow the lid off this case. So partial anomalous pulmonary venous return is a rare congenital finding, and knowing about the associated congenital lesions can be super helpful in clinical practice. Briefly, partial anomalous pulmonary venous return, or PAPVR, exists when one or more, but not all, of the pulmonary veins return blood from the lungs to the systemic venous system. It's actually very commonly associated with sinus venosis defects. There's also a variant called Simisar syndrome that exists when part of or all of the right lung is drained anomalously into the IVC. It gets its name from appearance on chest x-ray, given the appearance of, you guessed it, a scimitar, an ancient sword. Our patient didn't have this, but I still think it's a really great name. So based on this, we were thinking about what studies we could do next. So Alex, I just want to clarify, when we say partial anomalous pulmonary venous return, essentially, normal anatomy, you've got four major pulmonary veins that are draining oxygenated blood into the left atrium. And in this case, one of the pulmonary veins, right upper pulmonary vein, instead of draining on the left side, it's draining to the right side at the level of the SVC. And so essentially, functionally, this is a left to right shunt and could help explain some of the findings in this case. I agree with you. It blows the lid off the case here, kind of about what what we're going to do next and diagnostic imaging and going back through the patient's history and so forth. But as you mentioned, I think there's still a couple things here left to explain, right? And tell me if I'm uh, thinking through this right, Alex and Danny, but a partial anomalous pulmonary venous return is is a volume issue. And the question is, what we saw on ECHO was definitely evidence of diastolic septal flattening, which would be indicative of volume overload of the RV. But we still have to explain the pressure overload. So the question is, is this from longstanding anomalous pulmonary vein return, or is there something else that's contributing to it? That's a great point, Karan. And I think that this comes up all the time when left to right shunts are found. And as you had alluded to, longstanding left to right shunts can cause a volume load to the right ventricle and eventually cause pulmonary hypertension from that longstanding volume overload, leading to elevated pressures in the right-sided circulation and can oftentimes lead to this both volume and pressure phenomenon that we see in this patient. And as you had said on it, I don't think we've necessarily performed all of the necessary cardiac diagnostics. And even in the setting of partial anomalous pulmonary venous return, it's highly associated with sinus venosis defect, which we'll talk about, but are a form of ASD that is not necessarily seen on TTE super well. So as you'd mentioned, there's a lot of other cardiac diagnostics that we still have yet to do. And so the team in this case proceeded after they found this partial anomalous pulmonary venous return, they sent the patient for a transesophageal echocardiogram, which did in fact identify a sinus venosis defect with a left to right shunt. And so that kind of additional left to right shunt was was probably the etiology of her longstanding right ventricular pressure and volume overload. 
So I wanted to talk a little bit about sinus venosus defects because we hear about these and we know that they're not well seen on TTE, but it can sometimes be a black box for people in that they don't really know exactly what the sinus venosus is and what a sinus venosus defect can present like. So a sinus venosus defect accounts for 10 to 15% of all ASDs and is commonly seen in association with an anomalous pulmonary vein. Often a superior sinus venosus defect goes along with a right upper partial anomalous pulmonary venous return, and an inferior sinus venosus defect goes with right inferior partial anomalous pulmonary venous return. And one big takeaway should be that in cases of right heart enlargement where an ASD is not readily visualized on TTE, a TEE or a cardiac MRI can be extremely helpful diagnostic tools to assess for sinus venosus or coronary sinus defects, which often sit in a place that's not readily visualized from the transthoracic imaging modality. Danny, that was such a great explanation. And thinking about the sinus venosus defects, along with a partial anomalous pulmonary venous return, you essentially have uh, left-right shunting at two levels, whether it's a superior sinus venosus defect or an inferior sinus venosus defect. But you know, I'm just kind of thinking about all the different types of ASDs, whether it's osteum primum or osteum secundum or sinus venosus, etc. What is the sinus venosus structure you're talking about? Can you take me through that a little bit? Absolutely. So let's roll back the clock and put back on our embryology hats and pretend we're sitting in the primitive atrium. So in the beginning, the primitive atria are uh, one chamber, and the sinus venosus is the entryway for multiple primitive venous structures to drain blood into this single atrium. So the sinus venosus sits behind this primitive atrium between the two developing vena cava. And early on, the primitive venous structures, including the common cardinal veins, the vitelline veins, and the umbilical veins, all drain through the sinus venosus into this atrium and then into the primitive ventricles. So slowly, as the heart develops, hemodynamic shifts force this sinus venosus towards the right. Specifically, three major things happen. Number one, these anterior cardinal veins, anastomose to become the internal jugular veins and the SVC. And this naturally drains more towards the right side of the sinus venosus, pulling blood and pulling pressures towards the right. The second thing that happens is the left umbilical and vitelline veins degenerate, which directs blood towards the right side of the sinus venosus again. And third, the right umbilical vein degenerates with more blood coming through the right vitelline vein from the caudal portion of the developing fetus. Now, all of these hemodynamic shifts in this primitive sinus venosus and primitive single atrium shift blood towards the right side of the sinus venosus, and this leads to degeneration of the left side of the sinus venosus, which then becomes the coronary sinus and the oblique vein of the left atrium. Failure of the left side of the sinus venosus to completely degenerate can leave a little tunnel or a little atrial septal defect between the left atrium and the right atrium. Then in adults, this sinus venosus becomes the smooth posterior wall of the right atrium, or what is called the sinus venarum in adults. And this is separated from the rest of the atrial wall by the crista terminalis. Danny, you outline these steps within the embryology so beautifully. I just have to say, I have to take a moment to appreciate you know, just how amazing this whole process is and how incredible it is that we don't see defects more often. Right? I mean, it's just fascinating. That is so true. It is remarkable how the heart twists and folds and turns and degenerates. It's a true miracle. It really is. But yeah, let's go back to your case. What did you guys do next? 
So we've identified an anomalous right superior pulmonary vein and a sinus venosus defect. But as you kind of had alluded to before, the next step is really to quantify the shunts, assess for concomitant pulmonary hypertension, and kind of get in there and measure some pressures and some volumes and some oxygen saturations. So she proceeded to the table of truth, the cath lab table, to define the extent of the shunt and possible sequelae. Alex, do you want to take us through the right heart cath? Absolutely, Danny. Let's start with her initial pressure measurements. So I like to sort of imagine myself walking through the heart, kind of magic school bus style. So let's go. We start in the RA, where our patient's RA pressure was 21, as a reminder, normal being less than 8. So next, we move through the tricuspid valve into the RV, where we find significantly elevated pressures with a systolic pressure of 72 and an EDP of 24. Notice the RV diastolic pressure will remain similar to the RA pressure in the absence of significant valvular disease. Next, we move through the pulmonary valve and into the pulmonary artery. Here, the pressure measurements were 68 over 36 with a mean PA pressure of 47. PASP is normally similar to that of the RV, but we expect to see a step up in the diastolic pressure due to pulmonic valve preventing backflow of blood. We continue our journey into the pulmonary circulation with our balloon inflated and wedge ourselves into the distal pulmonary circulation. The wedge pressure approximates LA pressure, which we take as our proxy of LVEDP in the absence of significant mitral stenosis. Our patient's pulmonary capillary wedge pressure was estimated then at 26, significantly above the normal of 8 to 12. So in summary, this was super helpful. We, we now saw that she's volume overloaded and confirmed a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension. As a reminder, as of the Sixth World Symposium on Pulmonary Hypertension, the definition of pH is now a mean pulmonary artery pressure of greater than 20. Danny, we know she has a sinus venosus defect based on TEE. Now we've seen these elevated pressures. How can we evaluate the shunt fraction while she's on the table? This is really great stuff. Let's dive right into it. So shunt flow from the systemic circulation to the pulmonary circulation, or a so-called left-to-right shunt, can be localized and quantified during a right heart cath by performing what's called an oximetry saturation run, or a sat run, or a shunt run. And to do this, as the catheter is passing through the great vessels to the PA, or should I say, as the magic school bus drives down the wonderful vasculature that is the cardiopulmonary circulation, small amounts of blood can be obtained and sent for oximetry in each different chamber. So in order to perform a complete SAT run, we take the chambers from the proximal and distal SVC, the proximal and distal IVC, the right atrium, the right ventricle, the pulmonary artery, and the aorta to obtain a true systemic saturation. Taking multiple samples in each chamber can also be done, but are only necessary when the level of a suspected shunt is unknown and you really want to identify where it is in which particular chamber. So a left-to-right shunt is detected when you detect an oximetry step-up, where oxygenated blood from the systemic circulation mixes with deoxygenated blood from the venous circulation. A step-up of more than 7% is considered significant at the level of the great veins and the right atrium, while a step-up of more than 5% is considered significant at levels distal through the right atrium. The degree of left-to-right shunting can be quantified by calculating the ratio of pulmonary blood flow to systemic blood flow, or the QPQS. And this ratio is calculated using the FIC principle for cardiac output and by making a few assumptions. So first, because the intracardiac shunts will affect the mixed venous oxygenation or the pulmonary artery oxygen saturation, a systemic mixed venous saturation needs to be calculated to essentially reflect pre-shunt mixed venous O2. And this is defined by FLAMS formula, or three times the SVC 
plus one times IVC divided by four. Next, we make the assumption that oxygen consumption, hemoglobin concentration, and atmospheric pressure are constant. This allows for many of the terms in the complex equation to cancel out, leaving only the oximetry saturations to calculate the QPQS. Ultimately, once simplified, the equation boils down to difference in saturation across the systemic circulation, or aortic saturation minus your calculated mixed venous saturation, divided by the difference across the pulmonary circulation, or the pulmonary vein sat minus the pulmonary artery sat. Now, practically, the pulmonary venous saturation cannot be obtained without a transeptal puncture or retrograde catheterization through the left-sided valves, but in the absence of a significant right-to-left shunt, we expect the systemic arterial saturation and the pulmonary venous saturation to be the same. In other words, the left atrial saturation should be the same as the aortic saturation, and so the pulmonary venous saturation is often replaced by the systemic arterial saturation or the aortic saturation in this equation. Danny, that was such a beautiful explanation about how to interrogate our right heart cath saturations for abnormal shunting. Essentially, the formula you went over is to help us determine what we call the QPQS, where you know we can get it non-invasively using echocardiogram and cardiac MRI. But this really is a gold standard, right? QP being the cardiac output through the pulmonary circulation and QS being the cardiac output through the systemic circulation, such that QPQS is the ratio of the cardiac output in the pulmonary circulation over the cardiac output in the systemic circulation. And given that normally everything is in a series without communication, the ratio normally should be very close to one. So when you go through the math, Danny, how do you interpret the QPQS beyond that? That's great, Ahmed. So as you say, in normal situations, the pulmonary circulation and the systemic circulation should have an equal amount of blood flow. So the ratio should be one. But when the pulmonary circulation has more blood flow going through it than the systemic circulation, that ratio will become greater than one. And so what we typically think of as a small left to right shunt is a QPQS of less than 1.5. But when we think of a large left to right shunt, where a lot more blood flow is going through the pulmonary circulation, a ratio of greater than two often indicates a larger left to right shunt. And these are patients who often present symptomatically who require closure or some other procedure to help with their large left to right shunt. I have a three-month-old daughter at home, and I've started reading to her. And one of the things that I've started reading to her is the magic school bus. And I totally remember when Miss Frizzle and her entire class went inside Arnold's body and just roamed around, discovered all these things. It, it, if I had to trace back where I got interested in medicine, it may be there. My daughter will probably get interested in medicine if I play this podcast, a new magic school bus of Right Heart Cats. And so, Alex and Danny, can you take us on this magic ride of this patient's numbers? Absolutely. We have as much gas left in the school bus as we need to drive through this uh, fantastic case. <laughs> <laughs> so her SVC sat was 50%, and her IVC sat was 43%. Her RA sat was 77%. So already we notice a huge step up indicating that this is probably going to be a very large shunt. That's impressive. Yeah, super impressive. Her pulmonary artery sat was 79% and her aortic sat was 94%. All right. Thanks for walking us through those numbers, Danny. Let me go ahead and calculate the QPQS. Now I'm terrible at math, so I'm going to grab my calculator. And we said for the simplified formula, QPQS is the change in oxygen saturation across the systemic circulation divided by the change in oxygen saturation across the pulmonary circulation. So for the numerator, 
the systemic circulation, we take the aortic saturation minus the predicted mixed venous saturation, which we'll take from FLAM's formula, which is essentially a weighted average of the SVC and IVC sats. So for the numerator, the aortic sat is 94% minus from FLAM's formula, we get 48%. So the numerator is 46. The denominator is a change in oxygen saturation across the pulmonary circulation. For the pulmonary venous sat, since we don't have a direct measurement, we'll go ahead and take the aortic saturation of 94 minus the PA sat, which we had as 79, so that for the denominator, we have 15. Therefore, the numerator, 46, the change in oxygen saturation across the systemic circulation, divided by 15, the change in oxygen saturation across the pulmonary circulation, we get a QPQS of just over 3. That's incredible. So that means that for every unit of cardiac output in the systemic circulation, there's three times as much going through that pulmonary circulation. Wow. Wow, that is incredible. And for those of you that are listening while running or in the car right now, please don't try to do these calculations in your head. We'll certainly have all these calculations, this information in the show notes, so please pay attention to that. But going back to that QPQS, that is that is a very, very large shunt. That's absolutely right. I mean, it's it's really kind of astronomical, and it, it just goes to show probably why she's got such high both volume and pressure overload in her right ventricle. And I think we've really kind of demonstrated so far with our diagnostics that this is a very significant shunt and probably the cause of her multiple symptoms and her recurrent heart failure presentations. And it certainly also puts her pulmonary hypertension into context, right? I mean, she's a little over 70 years old. Her sinus venosus ASD and partial anomalous pulmonary venous return. When you said, Daniel, let's take a journey back through time, those anomalies, these defects have been there since her embryology, right? I mean, since first trimester of gestation, uh, but it's now that she's presenting, right? And it's this lifelong pulmonary overcirculation that's causing, that has caused rather vascular remodeling and pulmonary vascular resistance and pulmonary hypertension. And now we're seeing the consequence of this. And so actually we're, we're planning an extensive multi-part adult congenital heart disease series. And the theme that keeps coming back to us over and over again is really like, what's the pediatric presentation of an anomaly, but what's the adult presentation? And here, this is such a beautiful example of how a defect that's been there anatomically since birth causes these changes over time and doesn't manifest until late age. So at this point in the case, we've gone from formulating her story as HEFPEF with recurrent decompensated heart failure events to diagnosing a sinus venosus ASD with partial anomalous pulmonary venous return with pulmonary hypertension with RV failure. What's the next step in your management for her? How do you put this together and how do you take care of your patient? So thinking about what we were going to do for this patient, we were looking at the guidelines. And according to the 2018 ACC-AHA guidelines, in adults with a primum ASD, sinus venosus defect, or coronary sinus defect causing impaired functional capacity, right atrial or right ventricular enlargement, and a net left to right shunt sufficiently large to cause physiologic sequelae, usually, as we had mentioned previously, a QPQS greater than 1.5, without any cyanosis at rest or during exercise, should be surgically repaired unless precluded by significant comorbidities. This is only indicated, however, provided the PA pressure is less than 50% of the systemic pressure and the pulmonary vascular resistance is less than one-third of the systemic vascular resistance. These are super important numbers to remember because, in fact, it's actually a class 3 recommendation, meaning there's actually potential for harm 
to repair the patient's ASD if the PA systolic pressure is greater than two-thirds of the systemic pressure or if the pulmonary vascular resistance is greater than two-thirds of the systemic vascular resistance or if there's the possibility of a right-to-left shunt. So those with PA systolic pressures between half and two-thirds of the systemic pressures and PVRs similarly between one-third and two-thirds should be considered for repair on a case-by-case basis. So surgical correction for a superior sinus venosis septal defect with concomitant partial anomalous pulmonary venous return can be performed either by a patch repair or a warden procedure. In the warden procedure, the SVC is attached to the RA appendage, and part of the SVC stump is left in place to act as a reservoir for pulmonary vein inflow, which is directed into the left atrium via the sinus venosis defect. Surgical complications include sinus node dysfunction, supraventricular tachycardias, pulmonary venous obstruction at the anastomosis site, and rarely SVC obstruction. Typically, the RV size and function improve postoperatively, even in patients with advanced age. There's also some new, really exciting emerging data about the feasibility of percutaneous closure of these ASDs as well, which is a super interesting advancement. So our patient was also found to have a 90% proximal LAD stenosis on coronary angiogram. And so cardiac surgery was consulted, and she was eventually taken to the operating room for a single vessel cabbage, repair of the ASD, and baffling of the right superior pulmonary vein to the left atrium. The surgery was successful, and ultimately this was an awesome diagnosis made through multiple imaging modalities and complex hemodynamic calculations, highlighting why it is so cool to be a true cardio nerd. Her outcome post-surgery is still to be determined, but she's post-op and doing well, and so we're excited to see how she does. Wow, Danny and Alex, this was such a phenomenal discussion. And this is an area that I'm still learning about myself. And I've taken so much away from the way you broke down this case and stepped up from the basics to a pretty advanced level. So thank you so much for bringing us this case. And so glad that this patient was under your care. Wrapping up this case, there's so many nuances and facets to take away. But Alex, what was your main takeaway from taking care of this patient? I think one of the main takeaways I had from having the privilege to take care of this patient was really something I think Karan hit on really nicely earlier, was that if something doesn't fit, to really continue to evaluate and think about prior diagnoses. Because I think if we had sort of ascribed her presentation to another heart failure exacerbation, you're sort of more quote, run-of-the-mill, half-pef, we never would have found this ASD. And I think that's really important to sort of just take forward with all of our patients, just continue to evaluate. And if something doesn't fit and in, in your intuition is telling you it's something different, um, to really pay attention to that. So I've definitely taken that into my practice for this year. Alex and Danny, we learned so much from the two of you. And of course, the patient in this case and the amazing care provided there in Boston you know, it's also a really special case for us in that this is the first time we've really had a cardiac case report across institutions, you know, with Danny at MGH and Alex at BU. And both of you are cardiology fellows, both in training, both have gone through this whole process of becoming cardiologists together, growing a life together. And I, I don't know if you could just briefly touch on that and the aspects of becoming cardiologists while growing up together, basically, in this field. Thanks, Karan. It's it's a total privilege to be able to participate in medical education and to kind of grow up, as you say, 
in such an exciting field, but it's also even more special to do it with your life partner and to do it with somebody who's just as passionate about all of this as, as you are. Alex and I, we met in college and we have basically been studying together for the last decade or so. And so it's kind of become natural to just run cases by each other, to talk about exciting new papers, to talk about the struggles of learning medicine, both from a sheer kind of just the amount of information we have to learn and the day-to-day struggles of kind of uh, difficult patient situations, difficult difficulties that we've had to come across and work through together, be it kind of learning new procedures, learning new techniques. But it's also kind of it's it's given me a lot of uh, excitement to be able to share joy in my personal life and my professional life with somebody doing the exact same thing as me. And so we have very interesting dinner conversations about the new guidelines, but we also can put work aside and have fun and do other things together too. That was just a joke. We really don't talk about the guidelines at dinner. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I think it is, it's been really fun to go from studying sort of muscle bio up to, I'll admit, sometimes we do talk about the guidelines at dinner. And I think it is, as much as it is fun to sort of talk about the nitty gritty of medicine, I, I think the best part is really just having someone on hard days to sort of be like, I missed that that EKG or that and, and to, to have someone to sort of who knows what's going on at work and, and you can really kind of talk through those th- those tough times. Yeah, Danny, Alex, thank you so much for sharing. I, for one, would love to join in on a Papilla's dinner table conversation one day. But, you know, the, there's something so nice about being able to share in these conversations, commiserate with one another, you know, and, and enjoy in each other's successes when you're both in the same field. But the path can also be a little challenging, right? My my wife is a NICU fellow. Actually, Karen's wife is also, and we also met, my wife and I, not Karen and I, we also met back in undergrad. And you, you passed several thresholds together, right, in your life, like going from college to medical school, medical school to residency, residency to fellowship, and then eventually, hopefully, to get a job. And, you know, trying to stay together, it can be a struggle. So for medical school, my wife and I were cross-country. I was in San Diego and she was in Philadelphia. And it was, thankfully, we were able to couples match for residency and move to Baltimore together and now in Cleveland together. But I just remember in filling out our couples match rank order list, the night before it was due, it, it bloomed from, I think it was like 15 combinations to literally 105 because we were just so anxious about one, being able to stay close to one another as we're thinking about having a family and then also trying to avoid just not matching. But what, what were those transitions like for you guys? We very similarly uh, went to medical school at different places at Chicago and then Nashville. So I can definitely sort of share in that pre-couples match anxiety about wanting to be able to do residency in the same place and thinking about also starting a family. And so I, I think that they were also similarly difficult, though I think we were lucky looking back, especially now we have two separate sets of friends that we sort of get to bring together. And so try to find the uh, the good in those struggles. Yeah, I, I learned a lot of skills by having to navigate building a relationship across different cities. And also, sometimes we would be visiting each other in the different city and just have to study for exams together. And that was the way that we spent time together. But it was awesome, as Alex said, to build two groups of friends, learn two different cities. Now we're in the same place, learning the same material, but we have such a broader 
group of friends and people we can kind of share this with because we've been at different institutions and met so many great people. We have great mentors that that all know each other and interact with each other. So having two, I think, physicians in the family, whether we're in the same field or different fields, I think your network just grows and your support system grows. And it's been really, I think day to day, sometimes there's a struggle, but overall I wouldn't change anything. And I'm super, super happy. And I think there's definitely a light at the end of the tunnel and, and we're, we're driving this, I guess, magic school bus through life together. <laughs> you know, I think Amith usually ends an episode with what makes your heart flutter. Just listening to the two of you has made my heart flutter. The, the two of you are the epitome of education of excellence clinically, but more importantly, just fantastic people that have uh, really brightened this field. And I'm looking forward to learning from the two of you as we move forward. So um, that, that, I'm stealing that. That's my flutter moment for this episode, listening to the two of them. Karen, I couldn't have said it more beautifully myself. And I love, Danny, essentially what you were saying is, is while there have been challenges along the way, the the different experiences you both bring to the table makes both of you stronger. And we got a glimpse of that today. So thank you so much for teaching us about sinus venosis ASD and just brightening our day. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. This was awesome. Thank you. And now I'd like to introduce our ECPR speaker, Dr. Kerry Schaefer, who is an attending in the Department of Cardiology at Boston Children's Hospital, at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and at Boston Medical Center. Dr. Schaefer is an adult congenital heart disease specialist who loves to take her talents all across the city of Boston and is the perfect person to offer an ECPR perspective on this fantastic case. So thanks, Dr. Schaefer. We look forward to hearing your thoughts. Hi, this is Carrie Schaefer. I'm an adult congenital cardiologist, and I'll be discussing this very interesting case that we've heard about today. So in this 78-year-old woman with a sinus venosis defect, partial and almost pulmonary venous return, and coronary artery disease, we really have a lot of physiology to think through. One of the critical parts when we integrate such complex physiology is to really understand each individual component well, so that then we can kind of identify which parts are related to each abnormality. For that reason, I'd like to focus a little bit just on the sinus venosis defect and the partial anomalous pulmonary venous return. And as we go through this physiology, I just want to remind all of the listeners out there that when you do ACHD physiology, you really have the opportunity to kind of apply the knowledge you have from medical school about just true physiology to the human heart. We can't make assumptions as we sometimes do in the setting of normal cardiac anatomy. And so we really need to think about exactly what are the compliances of the downstream structures and where is the blood flowing. Okay, so let's start off with this patient's issue. So she has a sinus venosis defect with a partial anomalous pulmonary vein. So first, let's talk about sinus venosis defects. So sinus venosis defects happen about 5% of the atrial level defects. Many of you might have heard of atrial septal defects as being part of this family, but I think we as cardiologists really need to refine that definition and remind ourselves that the defect we're talking about today, the sinus venosis defect, actually isn't in the true atrial septum. Atrial septal defects are really just the osteum secundum and osteum primum defects that we see much more commonly. 
sinus venosus defect is actually a defect as the pulmonary vein, the typically right upper pulmonary vein runs behind this superior vena cava. And it's the lack of that wall that results in this defect. The shunt physiology is quite similar to ASDs. And so I think physiologically, it's fine to kind of bulk them all together. When we think about a sinus venosus defect, when I see a patient with with a sinus venosus defect, the first thing I do is really get a lay of the land in terms of anatomy. One of the most important associations is what we've talked about today, this partial anomalous pulmonary venous return. And typically, the vein drains into the SVC near the sinus venosus defect. However, it isn't entirely uncommon for patients to have another anomalous pulmonary vein. And so as we think through cases like our patient today, we want to be sure that we do an anatomy scan, including the assessment of the SVC up to the level of the anominate vein, because on occasion there can be a higher pulmonary vein anomaly, and that will dramatically change our strategy for repair. So after we get through assessing all of our anatomy, we want to make the next step into determining what is the effect of the shunt. And there's really two main ways to look at the effect of the shunt. The first way, which is nicely outlined in our case, is to look at the cardiac physiology on imaging. So typically, we start with transthoracic echo, and we look at the size of the right atrium and right ventricle. And this is an important part in which we think about where the shunt goes. So let's just pause for a second and think about this blood flow as it goes through the shunted area. So if we have a sinus venosus defect, what we really have is a defect right where the right upper pulmonary vein would be coming into the left atrium. That wall is missing. And so what can happen is that left atrial blood goes into the right atrium really very, very superiorly near the SVC. So the shunted blood would go left atrium, right atrium, right ventricle, pulmonary artery, pulmonary vein, and then back to the left atrium again to make that shunted cardiac output. So then when we look for the effects of shunting, we want to look at all those structures. Do we see right atrial dilation? Do we see right ventricular dilation? Do we see pulmonary vein dilation and pulmonary artery dilation? And in this case, we saw all of those things. And I think it's, it's especially important to think through the effects of the volume loading of these chambers. So our patient had significant tricuspid regurgitation, at least in part due to the fact that her right ventricle was dilated and thus the tricuspid annulus. We can also think about the fact that she has atrial fibrillation. Now, certainly there is definitely plenty of reason for a 78-year-old woman with a history of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and coronary artery disease to have pulmonary vein dilation. But even in patients who are younger than this patient, who only have a partial anomalous pulmonary vein and a sinus stenosis defect, they also can have a fib. And the reason is the same as every other patient, that when you have the shunted blood that goes through the pulmonary vein, that dilates the pulmonary vein and thus puts the patient at risk for a fib. So she really had plenty of reasons, not just the standard ones, to have atrial fibrillation. So after we get through assessing the anatomy and we get through assessing the effect of shunting on imaging, the next thing we typically do is assess the effect of shunting on cath, uh, the hemodynamics of this patient. And that's really where we make our final decision in terms of our next steps. And in this case, we talked about the fact that this patient 
had a significant left-to-right shunt. We don't discuss a ton about the possibility of a bidirectional shunt, and I think that that's appropriate because there's going to be plenty of reason for a patient like this with LA hypertension to have a left-to-right shunt. And when we do the shunt calculations, we find that there's probably a shunt fraction of about 2.5 to 3, depending on how we make our calculations. And what that means, essentially, is that there's two and a half to three times as much blood going through the lungs and the pulmonary veins and the right ventricle than the normal amount of cardiac output going out of the left ventricle and aorta. When we think about that, we have to remind ourselves that the pulmonary vascular resistance is going to be calculated based on the flow through it. And we might remind ourselves of the Ohm's law, which is how we calculate all pulmonary vascular resistances, where the resistance is the change in pressure over the flow. So in this case, we would use the transpulmonary gradient, and we would divide it by the QP, so the shunted blood. And in this case, we would find that her PVR really wasn't all that high, despite the fact that she had pretty significantly elevated mean pulmonary artery pressure. And at that point, in a case like this, that's where we really make our final decision about shunt correction. So if we're going to close a sinus venosus defect and reroute the pulmonary venous blood, we need to make sure that the pulmonary vasculature can handle it. Um, we want to make sure that we're not going to cause a worsening of her PVR. And I think that in this case, we felt pretty good about the fact that her PVR was in the normal range when calculated with the QP and thus she would be a candidate for repair. Now, when it came to repair with this patient, we had a lot of other complicated things to think about, including her coronary artery issue, as well as her severe tricuspid regurgitation. But in the average patient who has a sinus venosus defect with partial anomalous pulmonary venous return, we really have to make the decision between first between surgical repair and transcatheter repair, and then we have to make a decision on what type of surgical repair. I'll start with just saying that while transcatheter repair certainly is gaining a lot of steam, and I personally think that it's going to be great to have more options for patients, I think at this point, there's really not a ton of expertise across the country, and we really need to make sure that we're choosing the appropriate patient since the surgical outcomes are really good in most patients. We also have to remind ourselves that the transcatheter approach requires that the patient has a sort of relatively simple anomalous pulmonary venous return anatomy. So when a patient has more than one anomalous pulmonary vein, they're not a candidate for this new catheter-based approach. And so in my experience, we really end up, at least for now, sending the patient to the operating room. When sending the patient to the operating room, the surgeons are going to talk with us about the different approaches they might consider. So there's the one-patch repair which basically baffles the blood from the pulmonary vein and through the defect over to the left atrium. That can be a beneficial approach, but I will say most of the time at our institution, the institutions I work at, we use the two-patch repair, which is basically patching the blood from the pulmonary vein into the left atrium and then enlarging the SVC on top. And the reason why we like this approach is because it prevents significant SVC stenosis in addition to giving the pulmonary veins plenty of room to go through. Another approach which is sometimes used if there are a lot of abnormal veins is the so-called warden repair, which utilizes a cuff of SVC 
to baffle across. And then we use the SVC to write atrial appendage as the other connection to maintain SVC to RA flow and then the pulmonary vein flow into the LA through the patch. All of these approaches um, have their own specific complications, but I will say that in general, the most important thing to think about is the risk for sinus node dysfunction. And your surgeons will talk to you about the fact that there are some strategies employed to avoid sinus node dysfunction, but we as cardiologists after repair um, need to monitor patients for this long term. We also have to remind ourselves that in this case, as well as our subsequent cases, these patients have lived for many, many years with overcirculation through the pulmonary vasculature. And so they're always going to be at risk for the acquisition of pulmonary artery pressure elevation secondary to sort of true PAH, increasing PVR over time due to the history of shunting. So after surgery, we want to monitor for sinus node dysfunction as well as pH and any other right-sided issues that might come. I hope the discussion of this case was useful. I'd love to hear from anyone who has more questions about this case, as I just simply love talking about congenital heart disease and physiology. And I really thank the Cardio Nerds team for inviting me to participate because I think this is a wonderful way to help all of us take better care of adults with congenital heart disease. Thanks. Just going to say, did you guys notice how excited she got when she said there's new emerging data around percutaneous closure of sinus venosus ASDs? So just say, I know. I- <laughs> <laughs> Starting cast tomorrow, who knows? You know? Yeah.